Welcome everyone. I'm Sue Barber, author, former IT director for a Fortune 500 company, turn executive coach, and this is the Visibility Factor podcast, where we explore how to raise your visibility and play bigger at work and in life. We'll explore key topics and welcome guests that help you shift your thinking about yourself so you can see new possibilities for your leadership. I'm on a mission to create a visibility movement for leaders to show their value and be seen for their true talent. Are you ready to take the next step towards a higher level of visibility for yourself? Let's go. Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Visibility Factor podcast. This is Sue Barber, your host. I'm very excited today to bring you Jenny Blumenthal as my guest. She has written an amazing book and she has a great story about her experience in corporate and what she dealt with and decided to leave at one point and um, come out into this world of helping women really deal with burnout and stress and anxiety and all the other things. So welcome to the show, Jenny. I'm so excited to have you. Oh, thank you, Sue. I really appreciate you having me. Well, I would love for you to do an introduction of yourself since I, I gave a brief one there, but I think it would be great for people to hear from you and all about your story. I think you're going to have an amazing story and I want people to really hear from you on that. Sure. The quick version of my story is I uh, was actually an executive in corporate America and was rising through the, the ranks and uh, leading a leadership uh, a, a leadership unit or business unit within the company, managing about $200 million in business and about 250 people. And I really loved it in all, on a lot of levels and was really excited about it until I wasn't. <laughs> and, and suddenly uh, over time, I had lost the spark a little bit as I climbed the ladder. Um, by the time the pandemic hit, I was on three planes a week and, you know, rushing to go help other people close their deals or be at the next conference that was needed. And I was constantly giving away time and parts of myself to really keep up with the pace of the executive role that I was in. Uh, and meanwhile, I had two kids at the time who were in elementary school and third and fifth grade um, and a husband who was doing his uh, career. So we were hustling during the week and hustling on the weekends on the soccer sidelines. Um, and I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I thought I was supposed to, you know, really work hard and, you know, chase after this, you know, this American dream of financial security and having the role and doing these things that my mom and my grandmother only dreamed of doing. But the challenge was I wasn't actually that happy in it. And um, and I was trying to be happy. There were elements of the, of the job that really lit me up. But over time, I think I I spent so much time trying to be everything everybody needed me to be that I really lost touch with who I was at the center of all of it. And so for me, it took the pandemic happening and the world getting really quiet for me to finally admit to myself that I was really just trying to be happy and I was no longer that happy in the current state. And so I left um, and closed that chapter of my leadership. Uh, but that really opened up really the next chapter of my leadership journey, which is now um, spending the next two years from then um, really digging into what made me stay and what makes executive women stay in situations that they've outgrown. Um, how much do we feel like we have to abandon ourselves to fit into a system that maybe wasn't designed for us? And what's the main culprit of why this happens and how can we actually shift out of it? And so I wound up um, doing the research, writing a book, interviewing 300 women and their stories for it. It's called Ditch the Hustle Culture and Thrive 
again, right over my shoulder. And it's really this whole process of how to actually rehab from this addiction of the hustle culture that keeps us always on and a process to reconnect with the things in your job that really light you up and actually point that ambition towards those things uh, where you find more meaning, which ultimately should lead to more retention and more women in leadership and less burnout uh, playing a game you might not be able to win. Wow. Okay. There's so many things I want to ask you out of what you just shared. (laughs) I want to start with though, the should, right? Because you mentioned like we should Mm. do this. And I think we're all, you know, ingrained in us in society and culture and maybe family. This is what you should do. You should look for something safe and financially secure. And I'm curious in the interviews that you did, was that a big piece that showed up for people as to why they stay in these types of jobs. Yes, um, and you mentioned the, the the actors in those stories, right? Of well, my boss said this, or my dad always wanted this, and so often the way I like to think about this is now as I you know wrote the book and then started a leadership company where I coach executives on how they can take these same processes. So much of what I use in that is is asking people to say whose stories are really playing on repeat in your head? And are they your stories or are they somebody else's that you inherited or you picked up along the way that maybe was useful for one phase of your leadership, but it's time to set down? And so when I think about the shoulds, I come back to that. Like, who's saying you should? Does society tell you that this is what a a good mom or a good worker looks like? Does... Maybe your your family of origin, your parents said that, you know, you should go out and work really hard and try to take care of your family. And we have a responsibility to leave the next generation better than we found it. Um, that's what I was told and taught. And I marched into the workplace doing just that. But I think part of what our challenge is, all those shoulds aren't always balanced for the life that we're living or the even the, the, the generation that we're in, right? So all of that family wisdom was awesome from my grandmother who survived the depression. She gave me a great recipe for how to actually take care of your family and, you know, and amass enough financial security to not be vulnerable if war and famine breaks out. But it wasn't a great recipe for really thriving in your life. And so I think that's really where we see so many women in particularly are saying, okay, well, now I can be more than the three roles of, you know, a teacher or a nurse or a librarian, but where's the rule book and the handbook for how I actually live my life and enjoy it at this phase? And the reality is we're writing that right now. Yeah, I think it is interesting, right? Over time, things have changed a lot. I even think about generationally, like we were given different stories, right? depending on which generation you're from. And I grew up in a generation of work really hard. You'll get noticed, you'll get promoted. That's all you have to do, which obviously my book came out of the the learnings that I had that that's not true. And I'm curious from your standpoint, in the conversations that you've had with people, are they seeing a tremendous difference between generations? Because I have daughters who are in like Gen Z, maybe on the cusp of millennial And as they get new requests to do things at work or anything, you know, they're questioning that, right? Should I just do that or should I be asking for more money? I think that's very common now. So it's changed over the generations from what we learned to maybe what they now know. Yes, I think that's a great point. And if you think about it as each of these 
you know, generational cohorts have attributes that we grow up with that are really, you know, a product of whatever environment we were in, right? I think about the things that my parents always say, I'll always remember where I was when Kennedy was shot. That was like a defining moment, right? Or when when (laughs) Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and, you know, maybe there's, you know, younger generations would say when the Challenger blew up or when 9-11 happened and we'll see what happens with Gen Z as they say, you know, when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. But when you think about this and you think about the impacts it has on the the time that your cohort, your generational cohort goes through some major event, really impacts the way that you, you know, view things like money and security and work and meaning. And so we're seeing a lot of the research right now point to you know, yes, there's things that happen in your age and stage where, you know, if you get married and need to buy a house and have a baby, sure, you'll be, you know, wanting more financial security, regardless of what cohort generationally you're in. But we are seeing this big uptick with both millennials and Gen Z of wanting more meaning and purpose in their lives and making sure that whatever they do, they don't mind working appropriately hard, but they want to make sure that there's meaning and purpose behind what they're doing. Um, And it's interesting. And a lot of the discussion on that I think at first really got to, okay, well, then the company has to stand for something. And there's a number of ways that companies have done that from a cultural perspective or a stance that they might take on a certain social issue. Um, And I think that's a great thing for an individual company to decide. A lot of my work really involves how can you tie the company purpose to the person's individual purpose? Because the meaning that you find daily in and out of your work, you know, unless it connects somehow to what the company's doing, you don't get burned out because your company doesn't have a meaningful enough purpose. You get burned out because you don't have a meaningful enough purpose. So it's really just kind of reconnecting that piece. And I'm seeing that across Gen Z. That's an absolutely important thing for them. And for some of them, that purpose could be, I want to take care of my family and leave a legacy of you know, of new generational wealth in my family that hasn't had it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great why, as long as you're in touch with what that purpose is and you're making the, that as an intentional decision. Yeah, I mean, it makes a ton of sense and I'm seeing the same. The The interesting thing you brought up was kind of around maybe a pivotal moment that people have. It's mm-hmm. like for you, it was the pandemic. Are you seeing mm-hmm. it? It is something that big that is really what helps people get to that place of, yeah, I can't do this anymore. I've just got to do something else. Or can it be smaller events that happen that really make a difference and and help them get to that decision? Yes, I think that's, I think it can be both. Um, The things I heard in the book were actually interesting. Most of the moments that were pivotal for the women that I interviewed had to do with how stress was manifesting in their bodies, which was really interesting. So a lot of the stories started out with, you know, I didn't really think I was that stressed until I was running between Zoom meetings and I paused for a salad in the break room and my head crashed backward through the drywall because I fainted and, you know, someone found me on the ground. And that's when I realized my job was really stressful. Oh my or gosh. I didn't think anything was wrong, but then my hair started falling out and we couldn't figure out why. Or I was rushed to the emergency room with a heart attack. And when I got there, the doctor said there's, you know, after all the tests, there's nothing wrong with you. You just have too much stress in your life. And so, so many of these signals that I think our bodies are sending us all the time that sometimes it can be a big, scary thing. Other times it's this little voice or something off that kind of tells us maybe this isn't exactly what we're meant to do. Um, so that's definitely what I've, I heard from a lot of people. I think the other piece to it that we can't ignore is the pandemic really was a great 
equalizer in some ways in terms of information, right? So most people who had their heads down and were toiling away and were climbing the ladder um, and really their network was, sure, they might have had a presence online, but their network was the water cooler and the, the internal company they were part of. Now, suddenly, their network became this online presence. And every day you saw people posting about getting a new job or listen to what my toxic boss did. or And all of a sudden, this information was so much more available that I've seen many more people have these moments where they say, I'm not that unhappy. It's just I didn't realize I was being undervalued or I didn't realize there was this other opportunity out there or that this job even existed in this industry. Um, and now I do. And so I think there's there's those pieces where sometimes it can be a big event that so shows up as stress in our body and, um, and our souls. And sometimes it can be just the the information that can help you make that informed trade-off. Well, you know, before the pandemic, they had said, you know, by 2023, I believe it was, that over half of the workforce would be you know, in kind of gig type of roles or consulting roles. So I feel like it just accelerated that happening quicker (laughs) and and probably for a lot of people in a good way. So I think that's, you know, a blessing out of that Mm -hmm. situation if there can be one. One of the things that I'm curious about is, so let's pretend I'm a woman who is going through these big life moments and maybe I've just fainted in the coffee room, which, oh my goodness, that's a big sign. (laughs) Uh, What are the first things that you do? to help people start to look at things in a different way. Yeah, so the first thing we do is actually anchor them in the future because depending on where they're coming from, they might be coming from a ton of burnout, they might be coming from, I think I feel okay, but I think I wanna do something more in my leadership or more in my life. Um, And we really start with just anchoring in, what do you want the future you to look, feel like, you know, what do you want people to say about you? How do you want to use your time? And we really do that because the brain actually can't tell the difference between something that's actually happened and hasn't based on, you know, what we actually feed it. So if we write this future statement of it's a year from now and I'm running my own company and I've balanced my health and I'm getting rewarded for all the effort that I put in, the brain works as if that's truth and then works towards that goal. And so we start with anchoring there. Um, often what I'll find is people say, oh, no, 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 everything's, everything else is fine. I just want to make this career pivot or I just need to look <laughs> at this, this one dimension. Um, and, you know, we are human systems just like anything else that, you know, one uh, some sort of imbalance in one place inevitably leaks into another place if we don't address it. And so once we've, you know, set that future vision, we start to look at, well, what gets in the way really from achieving that? And are there things in your time and your energy and your relationships and your patterns, all mindsets and behaviors that are holding you back from that. And then the next piece, then we can kind of chart a course to how to clear that that out and move forward. So that's usually what I do, but it really depends on um, when the person is coming to me, are they coming in total burnout and we just need a chance to like really reset them some things or are they coming from a place of saying I'm I know I'm headed towards burnout but I'm not there help me kind of you know lead at this next level without losing myself in the process and those are two slightly different paths based on where you are um, because what I've learned from all of this is you know depleted people can't take on new learning growth and innovation so it's really hard to say someone to someone who feels like they're trapped in survival mode 
well, well, just go paint and just uh, just go <laughs> dance and figure out, you know, they, they need to get to a point where they feel safe and they feel mm-hmm. like they're not surviving and just keeping their head above water before they can take on anything more, um, you know, scary, essentially from a from a learning shift. So a couple areas I'd love to go in, in deeper on those is one is, you know, if I think of my own experience I was that person, you know, worked a million hours, didn't realize I was under as much stress as I was. I just kind of buried it, I think. And if you would, if I would have come to you at that point, I probably would have said, you know, I just feel like I'm a little stressed. I'm fine, right? I would have not probably told you the truth. And part of that I'm wondering if you've seen is it's almost like a habit. Like you create this habit of day in, day out, just doing the things and ignoring those internal messages or your intuition saying slow down until something happens and you faint in a coffee room. So how do you help people deal with the resistance that they might feel to make a change, even though they may know it's a good thing for them to do it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, typically what I do is, well, first I can kind of explain the the rehab framework. The reason we chose the, the name corporate rehab is it, it really is if, if, you know, addiction to this hustle culture that keeps us running is something where we're basically, you know, stuck in this pattern of behavior on something that's not that great for us and we can't give it up and it has negative consequences. It's not unlike anything else, whether you're, let's just take, Maybe you're a runner and you run so much that you blow out your knee or your ACL. You know doing that too much is not going to be good for you, but you can't stop because you really love that adrenaline high, right? We'll take something that's an exercise analogy. You would go to rehab. You would go and you would stop that thing and you would go and say, why am I being pulled into this and how can I actually restore my leg to its original condition? And that's really what we do within corporate rehab is we shift the mindsets and behaviors that you picked up along the way. Um, and really restore you to your original factory settings um, and uh, and then position you to better really thrive. And so really the, the rehab piece starts from R stands for recognizing um, your patterns and your values, those things that you brought into your day-to-day interactions, and it gives you the context for some of your choices. E in the rehab framework is for evaluate, where we look at mindsets and patterns and energy and relationships and understand what's happening right now. H is for heal across mind, body, and spirit. Um, A is arise and reconnect with yourself. So actually, after you've done some of that healing, you actually get a chance to try some fun things and the things that you would like to add back to your day if you're not hustling for your worth outside of yourself. And then B is building new dimensions of your life and work that are either more meaningful for you or make they feel like more informed trade-offs and and intentional decisions. And if you think about it that way, um, I usually bring people into that framework and we start with one thing and I have them you know, set an intention for what they want to do over the course of those sessions. But by the time we start peeling back layers of, oh, actually, there is this pattern and here's the neuroscience behind why that, you know, why your body might be adapting that and what actually happens within the body to keep yourself safe. And here's ways to heal that. By the time we get to the middle section of of heal, most of my clients are saying, okay, now I understand that this is all connected. And even if they've come to me from, I just want the career or I just want to look at this one element, at least now they have the tools and they're armed with how to do some of this work well beyond when we finish working together. So that usually winds up helping to overcome some of the objections. I'm literally just returning you to yourself. I'm not teaching you something that's, you know, a totally different concept that you can disagree with and and you're welcome to not 
return to yourself, but it's really a roadmap <laughs> back to you, um, which is, I think, the piece that helps people overcome their objections because the reality is I don't have the answers, but each person I coach does and it's just inside them and I'm helping them clear kind of the way for the things that they truly want or believe or have as as strengths and and gifts in the world and helping them, you know, return back to that, those things and those things that light them up. Where do you think people look for their worth in terms of hustling? Like, where does that Mm. start? So this is what I found in the research. And it was really interesting as I started to piece it together because I was starting with, uh, you know, how how does this show up? And is it really the hustle culture? Is it other elements? Is it individuals? Is it toxic bosses? And what I found was the hustle culture really runs on a steady diet of a scarcity mindset of, you know, there's not enough to go around. you got to get what you need first. You've got to take care of you. And if I think back to, you know, my grandmother, for example, being raised in the depression, that was her reality, you know, sleeping a couple kids to a bed and not always knowing how much money, you know, food you'd have. Scarcity was real. But the challenge is when we, you know, get older and we now have enough, you know, often those same mindsets and those same patterns are hard to shake. And so I think what happens is we trap a lot of that within ourselves and we're unable to kind of shift out of this place where we're, we're trapped in, you know, more of that scarcity mindset. And when I started to look at, okay, well, let me pull the thread as to how, how do people act when they're in this scarcity? If you actually think about it as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, there was, I was, the light bulb moment for me was, oh my gosh, the hustle culture mimics the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, but it just replaces the good kinds of needs with, you know, unhealthy coping mechanisms. So if you think about the Mm -hmm. bottom being that survival state where, you know, it's food, shelter, and water, once those are are met, then you're freed up to go pursue connection and belonging, then esteem and a job, then purpose, right? And, you know, as humans, we try to evolve towards that. And maybe even on a daily basis, we might be feeling really purposeful and then our boss has something and it reminds us of a a bad earlier boss and we're back down in survival and feeling like, you know, we're we're fearful and we better make sure we protect our job. Or maybe we saw, you know, the, the latest headlines about tech layoffs and think, oh boy, I better, no matter what, I'd love to collaborate, but I better make sure I get my number, right? And so when we think about it that way, what hustle culture does is it comes along and says, yeah, this this hierarchy of needs is something that, that sounds great, but what we're going to do is encourage you to just stay down here in the survival mode, or we're going to connect with other people that act the same way, or we're going to make sure that the esteem that you feel comes from your job or we're going to make sure that the purpose that you feel is coming again from you know giving more money or or having some some more financial security so it shows up as this way that actually you feel like you're meeting your needs because look I've got all these friends or I've got all these people are acting the same way it can't be bad we're all working 80 hours a week Um, but what it's doing is it's mimicking that natural, you know, those that need for connection, that need for survival and security, that need for belonging, that need for, you know, having some sort of purpose, but it's it's giving you something that might not actually, you know, productivity and performance might not really be the right way to meet those needs um, for you. And so that's really the connection between the two that I thought, boy, this is interesting because 
the toxic cultures that I saw as a consultant when I'd go in and help companies really do the opposite of that, that, you know, pyramid. They say, no, no, just focus on more money and more profit and don't worry about spending time and, you know, forget purpose. <laughs> We're, our purpose is to make more money. We're not a nonprofit. And so it is kind of funny when you think right? about that, that there's very real ways we hold it in place. And then there's ways that, that cultures hold it in place around us. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. Like you think about any company, right? There's very few positions at the top of the pyramid, if you will, right? As well. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you are all fighting for maybe one or two potential jobs that you might get. And then you're also fighting for ratings at, uh, you know, only certain amount of people get certain ratings and the best ratings. So Mm -hmm. it does create this, the world of scarcity. So yeah, it's, that's so true. I think it's amazing that you did all those interviews. So I'm curious to know, like any really cool findings you had out of you know, what we've talked about already that were surprising to you or you never really thought about it until you went through that experience with them. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I um, I started the interviews really just as a, a means because once I started talking about the book, I had women coming in droves and saying, oh my gosh, me too, listen to my story. And so it didn't at first start out to be you know, the statistical empirical evidence, you know, against what I was researching, but it turned into that as we went. And I think the thing, um, unfortunately, that was the most surprising is that women put up with a lot. (laughs) Women absorb an awful lot. Um, And I think the thing, I'll say it this way, the thing I didn't expect to be um, as much of an issue, I guess, or as much as, as a realization is I, I thought I would keep it, yes, focused on women because I'm a woman and I can I can understand what it's like to be a working mom in corporate America. Um, but as I started to think about, well, maybe I'll add in men's perspectives, I realized that the workplace is so designed from a male-centric point of view. I mean, it was put together in the U.S. at least in a, in a productivity mindset with the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. And we might have have different roles and maybe we have cooler office coolers and uh, and and uh, basketballs in some offices but for the most part it hasn't changed it's built for a man who earns the financial security for the household there's a woman at home taking care of the kids the man's access to his productivity has nothing to do with his biology. So he won't have to leave the workforce for child rearing or taking care of the emotional needs of teenagers or dealing with menopause. And he is free and clear to just keep climbing that ladder. And when you think about it that way, I was really shocked that I hadn't seen that before. That was what was really surprising to me is like these women have put up with so much toxicity, direct abuse that I was really shocked to hear. Um, It's not surprising given what you see in headlines, but to be in on a Zoom interview with a woman I had never met before, and this happened multiple times, and her telling me a story and saying, my husband doesn't even know this, or you and my therapist are the only two people that know the story I'm about to tell you. My HR doesn't even know. The amount of times I had that type of interview um, was shocking to me. And what it told me is that women are in pain across corporate America, not believed not listen to, you know, these people obviously had a need to have their story told if they're telling a total stranger. Um, and yet it wasn't safe to show up in their own environment and tell, you know, trusted people in wherever they were that. So it, it was shocking to me 
how much this, you know, the what is called the wounded masculine is running corporate America of be strong and don't show vulnerability and you can't be weak and you can't tell the truth. And if you do tell the truth, you're not on strategy um, versus where I think there's a lot of room for, you know, feminine leadership traits, whether you're a man or a woman, we all have access to both within us of compassion and collaboration and, you know, creativity and innovation. I mean, who is more creative as a species than women that are actually creating humans? But I think about, you know, somebody like a Jacinda Ardern is a great example of tough when she needs to be, compassionate when she needs to be. And I don't care whether she's a woman or a man, like that is actually the leadership example that embodies the masculine and feminine energy more than anything. So I think that was the thing I was the most surprised by is how much women put up with and how much of the unseen hand of just a male style of leadership is really running the C-suites of America without us really knowing it. And I think there's a chance for us all to become more conscious to that and make some intentional choices about how we lead the next generation and the future of work. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's so powerful. I mean, I just think about the acceptance that people have had, you know, that that's just the way it is, or I haven't been able to raise my comment. And if I have raised my comment at some point and it wasn't heard, am I even going to do it again? So I think it just frustrates people. And so they just stop trying to even raise it to a, a bigger level in some ways. That's right. And I think one of the things that was interesting as I was doing some of the research, one person said, you know, people lead the way they were led. And I thought that was so important. Carla Harris talks about this, um, that, you know, if you have a number of people leading a company and they were raised in a younger company that was command and control leadership style and the loudest voice wins, then how are they miraculously going to be in their mid 50s as the CEO of this company and lead in any other way? They, they don't know another way, you know? So I, I really believe strongly if, I, if you look into mental health and trauma and awareness and all of these, you know, aspects have some version of people can only lead to the extent that they have the at the highest level of, of self-awareness that they have. So I do think that there's bad actors out there, but I think most of the time you've got C-suites running by a group of guys that don't know any different way. Um, and frankly, that's backed up by the number of companies I'm consulting with now who say, we want to be different. We want to use different language. We just don't even know where to get started. And I think there's a genuine interest in leading differently. We just need a lot more role models about what it would look like so that people know how to do it. Yeah. Oh, I would love that too. I think it's so important because if you think about some of the characteristics they're talking about now, more emotional intelligence, more building relationships, and it's not that you don't want to get results too. It's it's not right. a either or, it's an yeah. and. Yes. And I think there is more opportunity for that. So yes, I would love to see that too. <laughs> I think everybody would. So how has your life changed since you left corporate? And what's your life like now? Oh, geez. Um, it's changed dramatically. I was much more frazzled and constantly hustling. Um, my kids, like I said, when I left were third and fifth grade. So, you know, we were rushing out the door to try to get shoes on the feet and get to school and volunteering at all the things. And every moment was planned. Um, I've done a lot of work on myself to kind of reset for my own burnout and 
do the mindset and pattern shifts that I now coach on and teach. And so I'd like to think that a lot of that has changed, but I'm also undoing 45 years of, of mental wiring and that takes time too. So I have to give myself the same grace and compassion that I coach my clients on. So I feel like that is, that is definite change in terms of my own demeanor that I'm different. Um, I now run a leadership company, so I'm a CEO, which is really fun. I actually really enjoy that and growing the company, which is really cool to be able to do that and get to employ other women and get to walk into the C-suites all every day of the Fortune 500 companies I used to consult um, on, on, you know, one thing. And now I get to go and help them help their leaders be even better. And so that feels so purposeful to me um, that I think I'm, I'm able to make those intentional choices on a regular basis. Um, I am operating a little bit more on a portfolio career, which is more of that newer concept of I wrote the book. I'm doing the leadership company. I've I joined a board, so I'm serving on that. Um, and so my days are relatively busy, but I feel like they're all built on things that I'm choosing how I spend my time. I get to say yes and no, um, and I'm conscious to what I'm actually trading off. And even when I'm pulling a later night or I miss something at my kid's school, I'm able to make that trade off without the guilt that I might have felt before um, and really being intentional about it. I think the biggest um, thing I, I'm proud of or that is different in my life um, compared to any other thing that far outweighs it is doing the incredibly hard work of parenting teens and being emotionally available to them. Um, my husband and I are both doing a lot of work on ourselves to just be a different type of parent than we would have been if we had been on this autopilot. And so to me, that's the most important thing. They'll be leaders in their own sphere of their families or of companies or whatever they want, decide to do in a way that hopefully will have more tools than, than maybe I did at their age. And so I'm really proud of the work that we're doing there far and above anything else. Yes, I'm in the same place with you. So I totally understand <laughs> what, what that can be like for sure. Oh, absolutely. But I do, and I, I'm, I've been on a similar path of just kind of learning about myself and, and having compassion for, you know, you think about those leaders who don't know any better, you know, if they don't yes. know anybody, you know, you when you know better, you can do better, right? So I think right. it is important for people to start to recognize that there are different ways to lead. And it doesn't take away yeah. from your, you know, the respect you're going to get or your leadership to do it in a different way. And it may actually bring more people yeah. to you and want to stay with you because of it. That's very true. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And it is a mindset shift, isn't it? I mean, it's the sense that like, you know, holding up, we could fill in the blank with any, you know, person that's been propped up in the media as this is the guy you want to be like because he sends rockets to places and all these <laughs> things, right? And if instead you think of that as, boy, he's he's probably got some limitations he's really unaware of mm -hmm. and, and you have some compassion for that. Um, you know, in the South, we would say, bless his heart. Right. You know, he has no idea, <laughs> you know? So, so it is kind of an interesting, it's a bit of a humbling approach to, we're all just humans trying to do the best we can and we'll show up in whatever level of healing we've achieved at that point in time. And our companies and our families will be the better or worse off for it. So here's to hoping that more people pick that up. <laughs> I agree 100%. Is there anything else from the book or anything else that you're doing that you want to share with the audience? 
You know, I think the the main thing of just doing a lot of um, speaking right now, which has been so fun. So I'm going into companies and talking about how they can actually relight the spark of what uh, helped their teams get excited about in the first place and kind of go from being this burned out, desolate forest of humans to <laughs> this really vibrant um, teams that will really, you know, get a chance to, to achieve these high growth goals that we all know we have out there in terms of profit and innovation and those types of things. So getting to do a lot of speaking on that right now, which is really fun. So certainly if anybody's needs some help with your teams or if you feel burned out and you want someone else to tell your boss instead of you, <laughs> I can certainly share some of the, the workforce stats that I'm getting asked about a lot. But so many people asking about like, how do they thrive in the future of work and without hitting that burnout? And that's really where so much of the effort is and emphasis is focused on right now. So I'm really excited about that. Um, so getting to do that with the corporate audience and then still getting to do a lot of coaching with executive women. So if anyone has a need for either one or wants to gift the book to somebody to read it, it's, uh, <laughs> it can be found at uh, www.corporate-rehab.com and you can find all of the resources there. Awesome. Well, I will attach all of that to the notes so they can find out more about that. Great. So now I'd like to transition into what I call the rise up and be visible quick tips. So these are four questions that I ask everyone. The first one, visibility is, and fill in the blank. I, I think it's essential. Um, I think it's really hard for women sometimes to feel visible in the workforce. And there's a lot of reasons why, but feeling seen is such a human need. And so whenever we can create that visibility for ourselves and for others, we actually get to feel seen and, and feel that value as a human being. So I do think it's essential. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with you. What mm-hmm. are some ways that you've been more visible, maybe in this new world that you're in versus even your old world? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad you asked this because it kind of makes me laugh that as being an author and, and a speaker and, you know, a coach and a consultant, um, I am, I'm posting a lot because there's so many people that are still looking for insights. I can't tell you the amount of times I'll see people in real life and they say, oh, I don't comment on your posts because I'm not sure what my boss would think, but I'm writing down all your leadership oh. tips. And so it's interesting to me that there's still this degree of like, you know, sometimes not as comfortable with what can be done. And um, and that's kind of an interesting, you know, anecdote to it. But I think that that just means that there's people that are really hungry for, you know, a lot of this. Um, but the irony is so many people are like, oh my gosh, you're everywhere. You're, you're hustling so hard. And it's, I, it's ironic to me because I literally, I don't think I've left my house for, <laughs> you know, I've, I've done like two business trips and the rest of it is right here in my home office. I get to see my kids at three o'clock when they get home from school and and people have no concept that I was on three planes a week and working 80 hours and this feels dramatically different. Mm-hmm. So it's a funny question because I feel like the visibility is what you make of it. You know, I wasn't posting a whole lot on LinkedIn before, so you might not have known I was in three right. cities a week. But <laughs> now you see me posting about books and talks. And um, it's funny how perception can be a little bit different than reality. But um, but I think staying visible just helps other people who really want some of these tips and don't feel safe enough to speak up or to be able to share that within their company. So I'm, I'm thrilled that I get to be visible so that others feel like they can be seen. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful way to say that. 
What is some career or leadership advice that you received along the way that was most helpful to you? So my best one on this actually came from a female partner um, and I quote her all the time and she jokes that she doesn't even remember telling me this, but it was like one of the most (laughs) important things for me when I was struggling trying to balance two kids in kindergarten and second grade and my husband had a career and I was climbing the ladder. And she said, you know, the best advice I can give you is to actually write down like the the three or four things that really make a big difference for you in terms of how you want to spend your time, but write them as a Venn diagram and see what is in the middle. So for her and her example is she wanted to be have time with her kids. She really wanted to be active in her community and she really loved the arts. And so she decided mm-hmm. to become a docent at the local museum with her and her kids and they would all volunteer together. So they'd get time together, they'd give back to the community, and they'd get to be exposed to arts. And so I always try to think about that because I think it's a great way, you know, even though we're we're hustling all the time and we're busy and all of those things, wherever we can start to overlap multiple things that that are meaningful for us, it just really increases the impact of all of them. That's amazing advice. Yeah, she should definitely remember telling you that. (laughs) I know. I'm like, take credit. <laughs> but that happens so often. I've had so many people say, I loved it when you told me that. I'm like, oh, I I don't remember saying that to you, but I'm so glad it was helpful. That's uh, right. Okay. And then any book that you might recommend to the audience that was helpful to you or that you loved? Um, yes. So I mean, I have tons because I had to read, you know, 50 to 60 to do the research. But um, the one that was the newest for me and had the most aha moments in an area I hadn't spent a whole lot of time on was um, on boundaries. And it was Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Glover Tawab. And it's a really good practical you know, just primer. She talks about the seven different areas of boundaries and the ones that show up the most and for, for women at work and, um, and some exercises. So that was really, really useful. And I think boundaries are the hardest thing, I think, especially for women in many ways, you know, it's, you just want to say yes, especially a lot of them are people pleasers and want to be liked. And so you don't, you don't always think about how to, I don't know, I interviewed someone on the podcast who talked about boundaries being kind. And, you know, let's look at them in a positive way and not a negative way. I think a lot of people see them as negative. So love that. Okay. Well, it is interesting when you think about that too. Like I have an MBA and going through all of those courses, I learned a ton about finance and the Black-Scholes, you know, option pricing model. Nobody ever told me about boundaries and these things that are actually leadership tips that could have helped us actually, you know, the way we lead. So I think it's also an interesting thing to think about is not just something that's like off to the side, but really central for how we maintain this longevity in our work and our career. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. I feel like I've learned a ton today and I know the listeners are going to learn as much from you as I did, um, probably even uh, some tips that I just never even heard of before. So I think that's always fascinating. I I love this because I get to learn as much as everyone else who's listening. So thank you for being here. Thank you for what you're doing. I know that you are changing a lot of lives out there for women and they need it, right? They need that support and they may not be getting it anywhere else, especially from what you're seeing. So I think that's great. Thanks so much, Sue. I appreciate you having me. No problem. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining today on the Visibility Factor podcast, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to the Visibility Factor podcast. Remember that visibility starts with small steps that are intentional and consistent each day. Be bold, be visible, be the leader you were meant to be. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all of our social media platforms, which are highlighted in the show notes. 
Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the Visibility Factor Podcast.